Well, welcome back to Success Quest. This is the podcast where we talk about success and we try to attack it from a lot of different angles and get a lot of different perspectives on it. Today, I am super excited because I have Nicholas and I know I'm going to butcher your last name, so you're going to have to help me out here. But <laughs> um, Nicholas Hinrichen? Hinrichen? Oh, that's really good. Yeah. It's a German <laughs> name. You did well. You must have been a German in your previous life. <laughs> Definitely not. I, I have never learned anything of German. I speak Spanish decently well, but not German. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, but welcome. How are you doing today, Nicholas? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is very fun. Yeah, I was so excited when you reached out. I was reading through all the things that you've done, and I'm just really excited to be able to pick your brain a little bit and okay. try to figure out your different perspective on success. So let's just kind of dive into that. You've created successful companies, you've sold companies, you've gotten venture capital, you've done a lot of things in, in your career. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got where you are today? Absolutely. So I was born and raised in Germany. My, my parents are originally from Argentina and moved to Germany. I was born and raised in Germany with my two brothers. I used to play on the German golf national team. So I was thinking about becoming a golf pro at some point, then turned that down and instead went to college, studied computer science and finance. Mm -hmm. First job in Germany, but then moved to the US in 2011 to go to business school. And then at Stanford, that's where I met my later co-founder, Chris, who was a huge, huge car enthusiast. Like I like cars, but I'm not like an enthusiast. He's obsessed <laughs> with cars. His uh, his first car was a DeLorean. You know the one from Back to the Future. Absolutely, yeah. That was the first thing <laughs> yeah. I was going to say when I heard DeLorean. <laughs> yeah. So that that was his first car. And so what happened was he wanted a career in the car space. Looked at a few things, didn't find anything that was like any role or company that was particularly exciting. And so we ended up talking about potential entrepreneurial activities or ventures in the car space. And then like before we noticed all our classmates approached Chris with one and the same question towards graduation, how do I sell my car? And so first we started giving advice, but then we found ourselves like manually detailing the cars, taking photos, um, taking them on test drives with people who we met on Craigslist. We felt there must be a better platform than Craigslist to sell cars peer to peer. And so that's how we started a company. So tell me a little bit about that company that you started. Obviously, you mentioned the problem, right? That there's a yep. better way. Craigslist just wasn't great. So what did you do to solve that problem? So I'm not sure whether we made it better in the beginning. <laughs> like it took a long time <laughs> until it got better. So what we did better is instead of you selling your car, it was us selling your car. Mm -hmm. And what we noticed is... And this is just how we are. We just run experiments and try to figure out what are little things we can do to make it better or what is technology we can use to improve the process. So we noticed that we were wasting most of our time waiting for test drivers or on test drives. And we also realized that the, the test driver actually didn't want us to be there. That person would have much rather been by him or herself. Mm -hmm. And so what we ended up doing is we created this experience that you can swipe your idea as a test driver, test drive a car by yourself. If you want it, you would just go to the bank, pay for it, and we'll release the paperwork. And wow. so we thought it, with creating this Zipcar-like experience, we can create a, a, a way through technology to enable a car selling experience that's much better than uh, the in-person over Craigslist. Mm -hmm. A lot of questions we got at the time was like, what do you do if somebody steals a car or right. <laughs> what do you do if somebody like hits something and, and then parks the car, parks the car with lots of damages. And so these things actually, they happened, but not as often as you think they would. Like the real problem with the model is the peer to peer problem. Like the seller thinks the car is worth a lot more than it is. And the right. buyer is super price sensitive and he'll just haggle forever. 
And so every time we, we facilitated a deal, we, we disappointed both of our customers. And so you're not in a good spot if you do that. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting to me. I actually had a an experience not too long ago. My wife and I, we have two kids. And eventually, someday, we're going to have probably three. And we're like, oh, my goodness, we need a bigger car. And so just for the fun of it, the other day, I went and test drove a car. But because of everything that's going on with coronavirus they weren't allowed to get in the car with me. So they did something similar where they let me take the car without having anyone else in the vehicle. And I was oh, wow. amazed. I was like, Ooh, this is nice. <laughs> like I get the car to myself. I can really test things out. I don't feel like the salesman's breathing down my throat. I, I can definitely see the appeal of that. But yeah, it was funny. Our first test drive, you'll, you'll get, get a kick out of that. So we obviously wouldn't let people test drive completely by themselves, but we had a GPS device, a tracker in the car. And in the very beginning, we changed that very quickly because the liability is just, uh, we even had a fuel cutoff device. So we could have just stopped the car. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, wow. And so literally the first time we ran the experiment of letting somebody test drive a car by himself, it was a friend's car. It was an old car. So had he, had he run away, it wouldn't have been a lot of value that he would take. So we watch him and, and track him on, on the map and we, he goes south and south and south, further south on the map. And at some point he just parks and we didn't know what he was doing. We were getting really nervous. We're like, is he taking the car apart now and selling the parts? And so we got really nervous. And then we're like, maybe we should call him or text him. But then he knows that we're tracking him. Mm-hmm. So we're like, let's zoom into maps and see where he's parked. And then we realized that it's an in and out. Like it's a drive-in at a burger place. He just got some food. <laughs> <laughs> and then the way back, he was still eating his burger. And it's like, I love this car. Yeah, I can Can I take it right now? This was a good test drive. So clearly a good customer experience, but it was just uh, had a few edge cases that we needed to polish. But overall, the peer-to-peer model doesn't work. Like You can't yeah. create a better experience for two people who are like so far apart in their expectations. And what we ended up doing, we ended up replacing all the private sellers with institutions, leasing companies, rental companies, cars from the wholesale auction. They're just much more rational how they approach the values of their cars. And so by intercepting the cars before they go to the dealer, we were able to take out the middleman and offer them for for lower prices. And so that was really compelling. Yeah, I guess your clients are more happy because the, the end buyer is more happy about getting the lower price. But then I assume the rental car companies and those bigger corporations, they're just trying to get cars off their hands, right? Yeah, they sell through the wholesale auction through a wholesale market to dealerships because they're not going straight to consumers. And so for them, it's just, A, it's a portfolio of many cars and not like each individual car. And and B, they're just going purely by numbers. They -hmm. know what these cars are worth. If you sell them at wholesale, that means you need to transport them to the dealership, needs to be reconditioned and then go to the customer. And so it's a liquid market, much more efficient than you would think it is. It's a really, Mm -hmm. really like a stock market basically for cars. So how long did it take you guys to get to that point where you knew that you had to change the model? I I think a lot of times we can really easily get kind of stuck in, oh, this is what we're doing and this is the way it works. How did you realize to change that? Yeah, you can get stuck, but it's also really hard to get unstuck Mm -hmm. because you have so much love and passion in what you did and you want it to be true and it isn't. So what happened was we graduating from Stanford, we raised $1.2 million from angel investors we, we then went through Y Combinator, the Startup Accelerator program, raised another 800. So we were at 2 million at the time and less what we'd spend. Probably two or three months after the Y Combinator experience, we realized this just doesn't scale. Every next sale is harder, customers are less happy, and people also are like 
incredibly nervous in the process mm -hmm. of buying a car. And so if you let them test it by themselves in the beginning, that sounds like a great idea, but then they suspect this is like a bait car. So there were a lot mm -hmm. of things that made it more complicated at scale. And um, it took us probably two to three months or so for us to really push really hard, hard at the very end and then convince ourselves this isn't working. But then luckily we, we had enough cash to allow for a pivot. And then mm -hmm. it took two to three months to pivot into the new model. And that took off really quickly. So then another four or five months later, and we raised $8 million Series A. Yeah. And so obviously you knew that the pivot worked as things started to grow a lot faster, yeah. right? I'm building a little business right now. And I'm like making these tiny little minor tweaks and adjustments, just waiting for something to take off. Did you guys do any customer surveys or how did you find out exactly what people were looking for and what people wanted? Or was it just paying attention to how the customer was acting during the sales? Um, yeah, a really good question. So you have, you have two sites, right? You have a seller and you have a buyer mm -hmm. in a used car transaction or the way we, we worked on it. And we didn't know which one is the better customer to serve to. And so since we were two co-founders and we had a team of, I think, four or five people at the time, we just friendly half the team. Chris, my co-founder, said, okay, I'll try to figure out if I can get the lowest price cars for buyers. And then this was like a little friendly competition. My job was to figure <laughs> out, can I maximize the price while providing still a good experience right. without selling peer-to-peer, -peer, so selling to dealerships. Customers already didn't want to sell for the price that we thought was the right price for peer-to-peer. -peer. I then had to figure out how to offer less and make them happy. That wasn't, wasn't going to work. Mm -hmm. But Chris succeeded in convincing people to buy cars sight unseen, which was very different from what we did before, because before it was all surrounding the test drive. We wanted to make the test drive a good experience. Now Chris had to tell people, I can get you a car. It's lower priced than, peer to, than the private party price because it's coming straight from, from the leasing company. We'll recondition it and you just need to trust that the quality is good. If, you, if the quality isn't good, you can return it. If you change your right. mind that you want a different car, you can't return it. He succeeded into selling a few cars. And then we said, okay, so this, out of the two things we could do, this clearly is the one that works better. Mm -hmm. Let's see how far we can push it. And then the, we found like a few niches and buckets of cars that were significantly lower when coming off lease than they were in the retail market. And so based on that niche, we started growing really fast. So fast that for the first time in the first two and a half years, the bottleneck was not people or uh, like finding customers. The bottleneck was capital. And so if capital is the bottleneck, that's something venture capitalists can help out with, right? That's, right. that's why you raise money. And so... We stumbled into something that worked and then raised our Series A. Yeah, I'd like to dive in a little bit to raising capital and your experiences with that. That's a thing that I've never messed with. I have never talked to, to angel investors or venture capitalists or anything like that. How was your experience with that? And what do you think are the pros and cons of bootstrapping a company versus raising funds through venture capital? Yeah, so before I moved to the US, I bootstrapped online leather accessory label with a designer friend of mine. So she was super creative. I always wanted to create these products and then sell them under her name or her label. Mm -hmm. I had been traveling to Asia and India a lot. So I knew how to source these products. And we sourced and we bootstrapped it together. And like it was a fun journey that was starting to grow by the time I moved to the US. I ended up selling my shares to her. Mm -hmm. as my co-founder because I wasn't going to go back to Germany. So I have the bootstrapping experience on one hand. And then out of Stanford, raising money was 
like it was accessible because a number of the lecturers and professors are all angel investors themselves gotcha. and have invested in the past. And if if you ask them for advice and tell them that you want to, you're exploring this or that, and you can demonstrate that you're really serious and you've, you've validated a few of their hypotheses, then I found these professors were incredibly approachable. The $1.2 million we raised out of Stanford was majority yeah, lecturers, former entrepreneurs, um, people wanting to give back, wanting to help their students get started. And so that's how it worked out really well the first time. Then mm-hmm. Y Combinator was a different experience because Y Combinator is this experience where you create a little bit of FOMO mm-hmm. among investors. You have so many companies and presenting, they're all growing, so it's really hard to tell apart which one is actually growing. And then you have a limited time as an investor to write a check, and so that helps a lot to get momentum. Very different approach, but also works. Interesting. So do you think that that's something that's unique to Stanford, the fact that the professors were investing in students? Or do you think a lot of universities across the country and across the world have that type of faculty? Yeah, so I can, in the US, only speak to Stanford because they only went to that one. I know in Germany, that would not have happened. In Germany, there is like a small circle of angel investors who invest in tech. They're all in Berlin or around Berlin. And so you need to know them. And ideally, you work on something that's worked somewhere else. Otherwise, you wouldn't get funded in Silicon Valley. It's very different. You can come up with a crazy idea. And if you have validation that there is demand for it and you have initial data and you're like you have a head on your shoulders, then the money is accessible. Like the capital is here. Mm -hmm. If someone has an amazing idea uh, and they really do need to get some capital, they need some venture capital backing. Do you recommend going the accelerator route then going into some sort of accelerator in that it increases exposure to venture capital? So there is Y Combinator is like among insiders. They also, I'm not sure whether it's the same, but they used to call it course six summer camp. Mm-hmm. And so course six is the computer science class in MIT. And so there were so many like incredibly brilliant people from MIT who studied computer science, who were then trying like built something incredible, but had no idea how to bring it to market, <laughs> who then went to uh, move to the West Coast and went through Y Combinator to get like some coaching and uh, guidance on how to start selling. Right. Um, so all of these students, they also would have had a hard time raising money because it's just not what they're great at. They're great at building product and maybe right. not at convincing investors. And so for those types of people, I think Y Combinator is great. I just talked to a group from London, for example. All of them were in different businesses and worked in different businesses, but no one had ever started a company or even knew people who were in the startup uh, area. I strongly recommend you go and then in, in doubt, I would tell you to go because it's it, like the fundraising, it's painful. And if you don't have the introduction, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just accelerates everything. Plus, it, you, you probably raise it at a higher valuation. So even if you give up some shares to or some part of your company to Y Combinator itself, it's often worth it because you raise it at a higher valuation, more money than you would have otherwise. For most people, it's a good idea. In our case, we did it for the first company and we're not going to do it for the second company. Yeah. Okay. And maybe we can dig into some of the reasoning behind that too in a little bit. But I I have a quick question on how do 
accelerators work exactly? Are you paying to go to like the camp and the experience and then you might get funded, you might not? Or are you paying with equity in your company? Like, how does that work? If I'm a founder and I'm wanting to go to an accelerator, how do they usually function? Yeah. So I only went through Y Combinator, so I can tell you how that works. Mm-hmm. My um, roommate, I think she went through 500 startups, and it's similar. So the way it works is you go to the website, you apply. There's two batches every year. And then you fill out a little form. We had to record a video in which we explain what we're building. Uh, you apply, and then you get invited or not to an interview. And the interview, YC interview, you can just Google the questions. is very short, 10-minute interview because it's hundreds of companies applying. Um and the partners grill you. They, they don't even let you finish the sentence. When they heard what they needed there, they just go to the next question. Yeah. And it's all around demonstrating that you understand your customers, you've spent a lot of time with your customers, and you understand why they think one way or not the other, or you had a conviction, you talked to customers and were convinced of something that you didn't believe to be true. So it's all around getting out of the building. And then once you're in, once you accept it, the way it works is might have changed a little bit, but I think you get $120,000 in funding for 7% of your company. Okay. Silicon Valley, that's a rather low valuation, but you're getting a lot from my Combinator. You get office hours every week, so you sit down with your teams and peers, and you get coaching. You have dinners where like the who's who from the startup scene, the mm-hmm. tech world is presenting. They organize demo day, you pitch, and you're likely going to raise more at a higher valuation than you would have otherwise. And so mm-hmm. I think it works out well for first-time founders. Very nice. Okay. That's really, really cool. And so you've gotten this venture capital, you've built this company, you're 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 going with the B2B route a little bit more and going through dealerships and whatnot. What happened after that with your company that you built? Yeah. The model that we had was on paper great because we, we actually circumvented or cut out the middleman. The dealership went straight from the source where dealers buy their car and made that source available to consumers. And that worked really well for the first month or so. 150 cars is quite a lot because of each of them is, say, $20,000. So that's more than $3 million that you move every month. Wow. Um, that's also compared to an independent dealership rather than the big site. It became a problem when we went beyond the 150 cars in the market because we were tapping out. And it only makes sense with hindsight, like I'm understanding now much better (laughs) what happened. But the 151st car wasn't easier to sell than the 150th. So it it wasn't getting easier and you need that to have exponential growth, but it was getting harder. And so the, the reason for that is twofold. A, we relied on a sales team. And so every time we wanted more people, more sell more cars, we needed more people. And the first people are the strongest because they sit next to you. They breathe the culture. They understand the story. And they can tell a really good story on the phone. The last right. sales guy you hire, is, he's as good as you train him. Yeah. So that was one problem. And at the same time, we were tapping out of the market of people who were willing to make a very rational car buying decision. So the cars we sold were like Priuses and Nissan Leafs to Uber drivers and rideshare haulers. And people who, for them, that was the car was a utility object. Like, I want right. one unit of Prius and as affordable as possible. The second we started to selling to people who recently graduated from college or got a bonus at work and now wanted to buy a car, the car buying decision is a very different one. It's very emotional. Mm-hmm. And so explaining to somebody who's very emotional that he needs to buy a car that he's never driven and never seen before is very, very difficult. Yeah. And our model just didn't work that way very well. 
And so what we ended up doing is instead of raising a Series B, that would be the next funding round, we, we talked to competitors and friends in the space, including our friends at Carvana, and told them, hey, we're working on the same thing, more or less, trying mm-hmm. to get car buying online. Should we compare notes what we've built and what's working? And so what we ended up showing to Carvana was the software primarily that we'd built to make these online car sales work. Because uh, if you either have tons of cars in inventory or if they're all virtual and sit somewhere else, you need to become really good at describing these vehicles without taking a look at them. Because in the dealership, you can always walk out and it's like, oh yeah, this one has backup camera. Carvana can't do that. It's just too big of an inventory and we couldn't do it because the cars weren't with us. And so that piece of software was valuable for Carvana because they had yet to build it. And then instead of us building two separate companies, we agreed to just bring our whole team over to Carvana, sell the software, return capital to the investors, and then have the whole team continue working on the same mission, but within Carvana, Mm -hmm. which was much better set up to succeed than we were. And so that's how we ended up selling the company. Yeah, and you actually went and worked for Carvana for a long yeah. time, right? Like you, you yeah. were a part of that deal. You didn't just sell the software and walk away. So, a mostly these deals make most sense if the founders stay on for a little bit. Because mm-hmm. a you need to integrate the software. B you're bringing the whole team, and so you need to make it work. Yeah. But we also we wanted to see it through, right? We we started this with a mission and vision to bring used car sales online, and so we didn't want to stop halfway. We we right. basically went from one train to the next one and the next one was just much <laughs> faster than our train. Yeah. But we, we got to see through the whole journey and that was really fun. Plus we became really good friends and close to the founders and executives at Carvana. And it was, it was really fun. I had a good time for three years. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the dream, isn't it? To exit a company and be able to, to sell it off or, or see it through to the end. I think you've been very fortunate in that sense that you've got to see it from start to finish, basically. Super lucky. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. Looking back, what do you think are some of the biggest lessons that you learned throughout that whole journey? Yeah, there, there's lots of lessons. Um, lots of lessons even before Carvana and lots of lessons while at Carvana. Let me walk backwards. So Carvana <laughs> You're good. And incredibly well is Ernie, the founder uh, and CEO of Carvana. He, has this, he had this vision and said, I, I know used car sales because his dad was in the industry. Um, none of this needs to be online. Like all of this can be online. And once you're online, you have a better cost structure um, and it's a better experience. People just don't know they want that. Mm-hmm. They will find out one day. And so when he started, this was very some like parallel to when we started, people thought it was crazy to buy his car site and scene. And he, right. he, he just had a strong conviction that that will change one day. And either he changes it or something in the world will happen that will help him. Like some mm-hmm. inflection point will come. And he clearly grew and, and built an incredible company. And it was a very big company already earlier this year. But then on, on top of all the education and the marketing he did and building the brand, like that, the tip of the iceberg of the inflection point that happened was COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, because people went from thinking it's crazy to buy a car online to <laughs> thinking it's crazy to buy a car offline. Like you just right. you went through that experience. And so now all of a sudden, all this work and sweat and like struggling to convince people that this is the right thing, all of a sudden turned true. Yeah. Um, and so the difference, the, the reason I'm telling this story is because Chris and myself, we were always very intellectually honest and, and trusted data. And so our belief was people will be rational when they buy cars. And so we need to make it a rational decision, help people make a rational decision. Um, and we didn't, we didn't have this 
North Star where we said people will one day understand that they want that. But instead, we try to iterate towards that. Mm-hmm. And while that is generally the right approach in a startup, I think you, you sometimes need to look up and have this North Star and making sure that you're running the right direction. Because if you're running one direction, all the decisions you make on the way will, will guide this way, mm-hmm. including culture, including how you talk to customers, including whether you invest in product and website or people. And so I feel like I learned a lot from Ernie, like looking at the North Star instead of just iterating on the spot, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it almost makes sense to me that you kind of need a little bit of both, right? You need that North Star for direction, but at the end of the day, like you can't just have the North Star and not be looking at the rocks in front of you that you're tripping over. Um, So you have to kind of move around and iterate, but at the same time, make sure that you're going in that general direction that you want to be going. That makes a lot of sense to me. Arguably, like I would be first one to admit that we, we lost a little track of the North Star and just tried to iterate ourselves forward. And we locally optimized, but universally didn't create the best company we could have. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one lesson with hindsight among many lessons, obviously. And now that I'm starting another company, we underestimated how difficult it is to start operationally intensive businesses. Mm. And... Like our new business is fintech, is technology and finance. Both of these things scale really well once you have something that works. I think from our setup and without having a partner other than capital and employees, I think we're better set up to succeed in a business like that versus a business that needs a lot of physical infrastructure. Because mm-hmm. um, we, we just don't have an advantage out of the gate if we require physical infrastructure. And so that's why I'm looking forward to having a little less operations this time. Yeah, and I know that you mentioned earlier, too, that you're not necessarily going the same venture capital route this time, but you're doing things a little bit differently, right? Yeah, so I'm not going through the accelerator. We're about to close a funding round. Okay, cool. Previous investors, which were incredibly flattered and uh, like very touched that they want to support us again, and new investors who understand the space. We're just skipping the accelerator because it looks like we'll be raising a good chunk of money at a reasonable valuation without having to go through the accelerator. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think arguably that's because we've done it before and have maintained really good relationships with our previous investors. Right. And you've gotten a lot of business experience and you've kind of been through everything before. And one of the big benefits as we were talking earlier about the accelerators is the fact that you get that coaching and you get that help. That's true. The, the other thing that is perceived as incredibly positive and I find it very positive too, but to an extent that I didn't expect it is that Chris and I are going to do this again. So it's my former co-founder and me doing again. And when we started talking to investors, even founder friends, everybody's like, Oh wow. So you're doing this together. That's really good. Like that does, you don't just don't see that very often that people quite a partnership. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I wanted that partnership to be that way. And I'd never, had reason to doubt, but it sounds like based on the feedback we're getting, it's not as common as we we believe it is. And so I'm flattered and happy that Chris and I have this relationship. Yeah, let, let's dive in a little bit into that relationship real quick. I know that partners in business, oftentimes it's either like an amazing experience or it's a really terrible, horrible experience. Uh, it's been likened a lot to like a marriage. Um, oh, so, no. Chris and I spent much more time together than he spent with his wife. When we were our- <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, so what are your tips to one, like finding an amazing partner and two, being able to work with them and grow with them and get through the hardships together? The finding, I think we just got lucky. 
Mm-hmm. So let's table that for one second. I think okay. the area where I have a little bit more space or thoughts is how you maintain a good relationship. The, the most important thing that I think that's different, and Chris is in my case, versus other founders that we saw split, is that we don't have a lot of ego. Like, we don't mind being wrong. Mm-hmm. We don't mind that the other person tells us we're wrong. Yeah. Um, like, we disagree all the time, but we also know that okay, let's agree on how we find out who's right or wrong. Mm. And so the, the answer is always, let's find some data. Like for things that you can find data, find data. For things where you have an intuition, you just either need to agree on who's right or you agree that, okay, we'll try something out, but we need to be open to this not working and then we'll try something else. Yeah. And then there's decisions where we don't have the experience, but other people had the experience. And so that's why we have a lot of mentors and just people we respect a lot as, as angel investors. So we can ask questions that we probably wouldn't know the answer to if we were 10 years older, but we just don't know. Yeah. And so that's primarily not having an ego and, and having a, a process Like we never explicitly talked about it, but having a process, how to resolve disagreement. And the answer is usually find data. And do you recommend that, you make that clear at the very beginning of a partnership. You sit down and say, okay, when we have a disagreement, because we will, let's deal with it in this way. Or is that something that just kind of happened naturally and that's just the way you two are? That's a thought. So yeah, if if you can sit down and create some sort of norms, I think this is great. That also mm-hmm. demonstrates that you're, like, you're willing to be vulnerable, you're willing to open up, you're willing to share how you feel or how the other person makes you feel. So I think that's a great idea. I just don't think people do that naturally. I think it would yeah. be very unnatural to do it. So for business school is known for a class that's called interpersonal dynamics. Mm-hmm. Within Stanford students, it's called touchy-feely. <laughs> and it's in fact a class where you sit down and just talk about your feelings all the time, which is really uh-huh. awkward because you have all these type A MBA students and all of a sudden you force them in the room, lock them um, literally for f- room for four hours and then they're supposed to talk about their feelings. One thing yeah. you do understand though is that like if something Chris says hurts me, like I have two options. I can just swallow it, which will lead me to be passive aggressive down the road. Or I'll tell him that what he said hurt me and get that across. And so once you establish that you can talk about these things and that's not a sign of weakness, but actually a sign of strength and like trust in the other person, I, I feel like that helped us a lot. Awesome. Well, thanks. That was super, super valuable. I think that <laughs> this is the type of stuff that I go back and listen to my own podcast for so that I can really internalize these tips. Because I think there's a lot of people out there. I mean, even in my case, I have a partner with this podcast and we've had a really, really amazing relationship too. But there's definitely moments where we've disagreed and where we've had different visions on where this should go. So I think that this is super, super helpful. All right. Well, let's move on a little bit then to this new company that you're building. Tell us about it. What are you guys trying to build? What problems are you trying to solve? Yeah. So we're building a digital platform to refinance your auto loan. And so if you take a big step back, when the last thing or last month when we were still running our own company, we experienced a tension that we didn't enjoy very much. Like these utility vehicles was very easy to sell because here's the price, take it or leave it. The second mm-hmm. you talk to people who, for whom it's a bit more of an emotional decision, people start haggling with you. And people don't understand cars very well because they're complicated. And so they com- don't compare apples to apples, haggle, haggle, haggle. And for us, it was important to make quick decisions and like, quick conversation to buying a car because we had a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we ended up giving in on the vehicle price sometimes because we knew people were financing through us. 
And if you get the financing through the dealership, which 80% of the people who get financing do, what really happens is the dealership will give you the loan that pays the dealer the highest referral fee and not the loan that gives you the lowest interest rate. Right. And so the day you drive off the lot, you could refinance and save some money already. And then something else happens, which doesn't happen to the same extent in mortgages, because mortgages, only people with really good credit uh, qualify. But for cars, you can get a car if you have a 450 credit score. Like there's a lender and a car and a rate for everyone. And so auto loan rates go all the way to 29% by law. And if you have a challenge credit, let's say 550, and your rate is 20% or so, and you make 6, 12, or 18 payments, you would qualify for a much better rate. But you're stuck in the loan. And so mm-hmm. nobody helps you get out of the loan because the initial lender has no incentive to do it, and you don't realize you can. Right. And so what we're doing is we're it's a small portion of the market that knows you can refinance your auto loan, but it's on Google, for example, more than a million searches every month. And so what we're starting is to work with people who already know that they can refinance their online and create a really smooth and digital experience. And then as a second step, we need to figure out how to educate people who don't even know it's possible. Yeah. I mean, I'll admit that I never really had even thought about it. I would have assumed that it was possible. It's just not something you hear of refinancing homes all the time, but not necessarily cars. And so that's exactly it. You don't hear of it. So nobody's doing marketing. And the reason people are, the institutions are not doing marketing is because the auto lenders are not very strong when it comes to going straight to the consumer, at least not in the auto loan space. Instead, they work with dealerships. Right. So if you started an auto lender today and you'd be desperately trying to figure out how to give auto loans to customers, you would end up talking to the dealership and tell them, hey, I can pay you a high referral fee if you just give my loans to customers. Mm-hmm. And so since that's structurally this way, Banks just have never started advertising to consumers, A, because they're not strong at it, and B, now they'd be pissing off the dealership because now <laughs> they're going around their, their most important distribution channel. And that's why you don't know of it because nobody does any marketing. Interesting. So basically the idea is, one, to educate people, and then two, to be able to help them find and refinance exactly their cars. I'm assuming you're using partner banks or something. You're not actually funding these, these loans, right? Yeah, so it's obviously worth the thought if you you could create an even smoother and better experience if you were the lender, but the answer, you'll quickly come to a no because the auto lenders are really good at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're really good at lending, really good at assessing risk. They're just not so strong at acquiring customers. Right. And so what we're focusing on is building distribution, building a way to acquire customers, and then we'll create this marketplace where dealers and banks and lenders can show what rates they would offer for certain credit scores. Mm-hmm. And then the consumer picks, oh, I want this one. It's pretty obvious who the lenders would be if you are prime, so better than 700 credit. Your best lender will be a credit union. Credit unions have very low cost, low cost of capital because of the deposits, community charters, and nonprofits. So a normal lender can't even compete. And if you used to be subprime and are now near prime, so in the 600 segment, 600 to 700, then the, the usual suspects would be Capital One, LA Financial, Chase, Bank of America, Wells, you name it. Mm-hmm. So let's say like tomorrow we go and buy a car. We come off the lot. How quickly can I refinance my loan? I mean, I know that you said that sometimes you can save immediately, but is there any sort of like I have to wait for six months or a year or anything like that? Yeah. So there's no cost to you checking if you can refinance. So what I always recommend 
I'm sure using the app Credit Karma, you're checking your credit every week or so. Checking for refinance is the exact same thing, like literally the exact same thing. You could check every week and we can even send you a reminder and alert, hey, Jacob, now is a great time to refinance. So there's no cost to checking such check. Most likely, depending on which credit tier you are, you should make six to 12 pay- payments and then like your, your credit score will have moved significantly and you'll qualify for a higher rate. T- to give you an example, when I moved to the US, I had no credit history. A, we didn't have that in Germany. B, I didn't have any debt. Yeah. And C, if you're four now, you start from scratch. And then even four years after I got my first credit card, Chris, my co-founder, discovered that Fiat was running this crazy crazy promotion that they, they gave away leases for these Fiat 500, the electric version, in California for $89 a month. $89 is, I think, less than I pay for my phone. So that's how, how affordable that one was. And so we went straight to the dealership. He was done in five minutes. I sit down with a financing manager, and after 20 minutes, he comes back and said, okay, you don't have a lot of credit. Your monthly payments will be $1,200. I said, $1,200? I came here for $89. It's like, yeah, no, I'm like, it's 36 months, so 36 payments of $89. Can I just pay all of that at once? He's like, no, you can't. And so Chris <laughs> had to co-sign for me to get the $89 deal. Right. And then it took six months, not more than six months for me to run another credit app for fun. And I would have been approved for a car of all the way up to $100,000 at 1.99%. Right. So it's just having that history, having that credit history that you didn't have. Exactly. The best way to improve your credit is just make your payments on everything, your credit card, everything. And then if you make that your payments for 6, 12 or 18 months. Awesome. So is this business already launched? Like if I wanted to go and check and see if I could refinance my car right now, could I actually go do that? Or are you guys still in the yeah. building phase? No, we, we, you could do that in theory. <laughs> we have a landing page. The company is called Clutch. The okay. domain is withclutch.com. And what you will experience, it's very hacked together because we did it and our engineering team is only going to start working on it in two weeks from now. Mm-hmm. But you can enter your details. It's very easy to go from phone number, person details. You give me consent to pull your credit so we can determine which loan to refinance. We'll then pull all the vehicles register you. And once we can match loan and vehicle, we'll make you a firm credit offer. And then if that's interesting to you, we put you in touch with the partner who does the fulfillment at this point. Gotcha. It's a little hacky and the handover is not very smooth, but in theory, it's possible. So right now, basically, you just fill out a form and then you guys kind of get back. Um, And then in the future, like, let's say once the engineering team's all done, what's the vision for this product? What's it all going to look like? Yeah, good question. So Refi is really only just the beginning because there is a ton of other products, your insurance, car insurance, your vehicle service contract, your gap insurance, even your trade-in or your new car, all these elements of car ownership uh, are very dynamic and fluid and change a lot. And so if you improve your credit, you qualify for a refi, but you also qualify for a lower insurance premium. And so just like Credit Karma, we will be in touch with you and tell you at any given time what the best decision would be with all the products that are linked to your car. We want car ownership to feel like a subscription. I love it. I think that you're on to something there. I think it's a really, really good idea. Keep it up. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much. What's kind of the, the timeline? Are you guys looking at a couple of years to build this out? or? Yeah. So the, the first step, to, we're raising a seed round. And a seed round means you don't know exactly what you're building yet. You have a strong conviction, but you need to build it, put it in front of customers and learn. Versus Series A means it works. Just put more money on it to grow. Right. And so... Usually what you do when you raise a seed, you you have you try to build the product in the next two to three months. 
um, and then iterate, 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 learn. And then you hope that in 18 months from now, you're at a point where you confirm we have product market fit. People mm -hmm. want what we have. And if we had more money, we could serve more customers. So let's right. raise Series A. And so that's more or less the plan. Cool. Well, I'm really excited yeah. to follow it. I'm going to, I'm going to bookmark with clutch.com and, and keep an eye on you guys, especially since we are looking at potentially purchasing a car within the next year or so. Um, we're not Perfect. urgently looking for one, but we do need a bigger car. So I'll be definitely taking a look at it. <laughs> yeah, reach out if you need tips and tricks. I've been in the space. <laughs> I've been around the block. <laughs> I definitely will. Well, Awesome. Thank you so much, Nicholas. This was amazing. I've learned so much about a world that I really know nothing about, which is like venture capital and building companies. And it's been such a fun conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to like to mention or, or leave with us? Well, first, I wanted to thank you for having me. Like, it's a pleasure to be here. And then secondly, I would love for people to connect with me if they want my feedback on something they're building, if they want help, if they're trying to raise money. I've gotten very lucky many times over the last seven years, and a lot of people helped me. And so if there's any way I can give back, I'd love to do that. The best way to reach me is probably over LinkedIn. Just look for Nicholas Hendrickson and then connect, and I look forward to talking. Awesome. And I'll, I'll go ahead and throw your LinkedIn link in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Nicholas. I really appreciate you coming on. There's a lot of knowledge there, and I know that you have a lot of experience to help the rest of us out. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Very flattering. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you.